everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today, very excited to be joined by Eric Roy. And I'm excited because uh, Eric doesn't know this. We, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but uh, I actually have a degree in accounting and I started my my professional life out in the area of finance. And so I'm uh, very, very happy to speak with another person who actually understands debits and credits. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Christian. It's I uh, just really want to thank you for having this platform. I've listened to all the podcasts, some of them a few times, and it's it's just been incredible. So I want to thank you for having me. It's It's an honor. Well, the honor is mine, and uh, I, I really enjoy getting to speak with you and our colleagues who worked at SLOC. Um, for many of us, it was a highlight of our careers and our lives to be able to work on those games. But before we get to the games themselves, um, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing these days. So where are you joining us from, and uh, what are you working on? I am in uh, Durango, Colorado, and we just got about two feet of snow last night. So hopefully I'm going to head up to Purgatory later today. I work for the Glacier Club, which is a mountain community about 20 miles north of Durango, eight miles south of Purgatory. I'm the accounting manager. And uh, we have two golf courses, two 18-home golf courses, uh, two clubhouses, two restaurants. Uh, It's just an amazing community up there nestled in the mountains. And I teach uh, business classes at the local community college, um, accounting and business. So that's great. That's that's super fun. I love sharing all my experience over the years with the students. And, you know, half of my stories, I think, are from Slock <laughs> to this day, you know. But, uh, you know, it's great just having that real world experience because it seems like most of the books written are from people who've never worked, you know, in a real job in their life to, except academia. And, uh, yeah, we live here in Durango. My wife works for the state of Colorado. Catherine and uh, I have a 13-year-old daughter, Savannah, banana pancakes, uh, here going to middle school. Well, currently under my regime, uh, being homeschooled. Um, I think she'd rather be in school than have me be the principal. But uh, yeah, that's that's where we are now. And, and, and the story of how we got here is actually crazy, Christian, because it started right after we left the Olympics. So, you know, you, know we, you have an end date when you're working there, right? And I met my my wife, Catherine, there, she was my girlfriend at the time. And we knew that uh, I think I was done in May 20, uh, May 2002. And we just planned for a trip around the world. We bought a, a V-Dub Westie and we we uh, took off after the games and went down to the south uh, desert in Utah and up the California coast and BC and Banff and Montana and then back to Maine where I'm from. And and then we were able to plan uh, a trip, and I made the budget, of course, uh, around the world. And we bought our tickets from a consolidator uh, right after 9-11. And we got uh, 12 stops around the world for under $3,000 each. We went from New York to LA to Tahiti, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, Bali, India, Thailand, uh, Greece, Italy, London, and back. 
And it was just crazy. It was just so amazing that, you know, we were able to do that. And mostly, you know, because of the Olympics and because of the severance I got. And she was saving up money, too. And, you know, it was such an exciting time researching all the books and what to do. You know, it was just it was just crazy. Great. And uh, so I hoped to end up in Torino. But I went there and I met um, Chip Suttles was there and John DiCavallo. And I had an interview um, because Brett recommended me. but it just didn't quite seem like the right fit. So um, I went to follow my wife. She went to Cal Poly to get her master's. And I started in the newspaper industry, actually under Par Ritter, who was uh, a true leader, a lot like Mitt. Um, his dad was Tony Ritter, and they owned the Knight Ritter Empire Empire <laughs> company. They had 32 dailies. They had a, a second largest, I think, uh, newspaper company in the in the nation so he took me under his wing and that was great i learned the newspaper industry and then i went to vancouver i was the vik manager for about a year and a half and then uh you know the rain really got to us and i had an opportunity to be in santa cruz as the director of finance for the santa cruz sentinel and um i did that for seven years and then we just wanted to be in the mountains in durango and and here we are Wow, what an incredible journey. There's a lot to unpack there. First of all, you created like the hashtag van life uh, before that was a thing, before there were things called hashtags. So, you know, way to be the trendsetter. The world trip sounds fascinating. Um, we could probably do a whole podcast just on recounting your, your travels through that, but we'll leave that for another day. You talked about your work as a teacher there at the community college. And uh, you mentioned that your daughter was also being homeschooled at the time uh, right now uh, because of COVID. So does that mean that you are also uh, working remotely? Are you working from home or do you have to go in on site and teach or, or, or work? It's all online. So I'm, uh, well, I'm three days a, a, a week up at Glacier Club and we, we, we stagger it. So we only have two people in the office at a time. So we want to keep the office open, but yet. We want to keep our distancing. So we have six folks on staff. So it's that way. And I'm actually not teaching a class this semester. Um, but what the last semester, it was all online. Uh, we started, I started, there's a local campus here at actually Durango High School uh, where I started. But, you know, there'd be maybe three students physically there. And then we would uh, uh, remote out or web exit out to, uh, we have a campus in Freeport, uh, Fremont. Pueblo, uh, Mancus, a few other campuses. So it's like, why do I even, you know, need to be here? So we do it online. And, you know, there's a lot of, sh- there's a lot of issues with that. I, 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 I truly believe that, you know, it helps to be in person as much as you can at, at teaching, uh, especially like after class where, where students can really, you know, get one-on-one with you. Um, but for most of the work, I think we've learned a lot from COVID that, you know, you can do it from home. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, hopefully it won't be a totally permanent situation. Um, maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel this year. Let's see how we go. All right. Uh, last thing I wanted to say before we jump into our next little set of questions for you was I would really like you to send some of that two feet of snow our way. We've been (laughs) suffering here in Utah. We've, we've had an incredible drought. I mean, 2020 was the driest calendar year on record and 
this year is not looking so hot so far. So, you know, congratulations on your two feet of snow. I hope it wasn't too much trouble to shovel it or blow it, but well done on getting the snow. Thank you. Yeah, it's actually our first. Well, we've had two storms before this, but this is so much needed. We've also been in a drought and, you know, we just need the moisture desperately because we're in the high desert. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's great. I'm super excited about it. All right. Well, I want to come back to the travel. You mentioned Fiji. You mentioned Tahiti. Looking like amazing places. And it actually segues quite nicely into my marooned on an island question, which I shamelessly appropriated from Spence Checkets, uh, who does a, a radio show here called The Drive. And he asked this questions of his guests on occasion. And so I, I thought this is just kind of, uh, it's a nice way to, for people to get to know people and share some, some trivial uh, information. So the question is, you're marooned on an island for a week. You can have one album, one movie, one meal. What would they be? <laughs> wow. I didn't prepare for this, but I, I should have, even though all my life I've been thinking about it too. Usually it's longer than a week, right? So I was always thinking that why not bring a double album, right? You know, there's some great, great albums, but they're just too, too short. So, you know, maybe like a Bob Marley, Babylon by Bus or the Grateful Dead, uh, uh, Europe 72 or, you know, Zeppelin Houses of the Holy, something where you got, you know, a couple albums, The Clash, Sand and East, <laughs> or something like that, where, you know, you, you got to listen to it over and over because there's so many good albums. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you want longevity in that. And then almost the same in a movie, you want the layers. So like The Good, Bad and the Ugly probably be on the top of my list, you know, three epic hours. I just, I love that movie and food, man, food's a tough one. I, I, uh, I guess I'd go with, you know, I'm from back East. So I miss, I miss, I'm, I miss good seafood, you know? So like that scene in, uh, uh, where Tom Hanks was stranded there and, uh, what was that movie? And um, Castaway. Thank you. Castaway. Yeah. When he gets that crab, you know, and he's, he's, he's dipping that crab in his mouth. I was always like, yeah, that's great. I could eat crab for a week. <laughs> so maybe I guess that's my answer. I think that's awesome. Uh, well, I asked the question this way because there are other ways to ask it and they're a little bit more morbid. Like you have a week left to live, you know, <laughs> or yeah, you're marooned on this Island forever. You can only eat these, three, you know, whatever. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. So that's why I wanted to go on something a little less life and death, a little, a little more with a little more levity. You were telling me at the outset that you really wanted to tell the story of how you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. And so I want to give you opportunity to do that. What were you doing before the Salt Lake 2002 games came into your life? And how did you find your way to SLOC? I graduated from St. Joseph's College in Maine in 97 and uh, had an old Nissan pickup truck. And I put a cap on it. And... Uh, piece of plywood in the back so I could sleep and threw my snowboard gear underneath it and I headed west young man and I had a friend in the Grand Canyon I had no money I had like a thousand dollars and a credit card and I just went and stayed with him for about a month I overstayed my welcome I just couldn't leave I was just fell in love with you know the west and I I had put a uh 
pin on the map, I guess, for Steamboat. I was head of the Steamboat, you know, reading powder magazines growing up in Maine. I was just, uh, just so excited and stopped at a friend's house in the avenues. And he said, why are you going to Steamboat? And he took me on some hikes up Big Cottonwood and Little Cottonwood. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, yeah, why am I going to Steamboat? And I stayed there. So I stayed on his couch. <laughs> it's a trend going on, I guess. Uh, where, But he had a friend who needed a job, uh, who needed people to help him. He's a brine shrimp fisherman on the Great Salt Lake. And they kind of like laughingly said, go work out on the Great Salt Lake. You know, they knew how crazy it'd be. And, and uh, so I met this guy and he gave me directions out there. I'll never forget. He's like, you know, get off in Tooele. And so I wrote down T-U-W-I-L-L-A, I'll get off in Tooele. And, you know, I cruised right by Thule. You know, I ended up out by Wyoming somewhere. And I was like, wait a second. Yeah. But that was crazy. There's some crazy stories there too. Uh, brine shrimp fishing on the Great Salt Lake. But my dad was a lobsterman back in Maine uh, for a bit. And so I kind of knew boats. And, and uh, so anyway, I fit in there a little bit. And then uh, I went and worked in the ticket window at Solitude. I never understood why folks would be lifties out in the cold shoveling when you can be in a nice warm <laughs> ticket window office. So that was great. You know, I, I swear it, it snowed every day of that February. It was just beyond magic. I rode every single day. You know, I didn't have any money. You know, all I had was my pass. So I would just ride, ride, ride. It was just, it was just so, so amazing. And then in March, I had a, I guess, a philosophical difference with a ski patrol. And so I left and uh, I went to account temps on a, I applied on a Thursday. They interviewed me on a Friday and they sent me to the Olympics on Monday. And I started as a temp in March of 98. And they didn't even have a desk for me. I was, I had a table out in the hall. <laughs> Everyone who came in and out, they like saw me. Me and Kelly Storms were out there. And they're like, hey, you're out in the hall, huh? Yeah, yeah, we're out in the hall. But it was great. I was working for Mike Muir, who's the new controller at the time, and uh, Bechtel. Bechtel was doing the budget. So Bechtel had me entering um, the budget. Right from the get-go, I, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I didn't know anything, but I was entering. We'd start at the function level, accommodations, and then, you know, a project level, like, you know, NOC housing, and then, you know, uh, to a line item level. And uh, after a while, I remember being like, what, what is all this, Bob? What, what's going on? You know, I don't understand any of this. And he, he gave me the host city contract. He's like, you want to know what's going on? Read that. So I'm sure you've probably read some of those. It's just enlightening. It's just crazy how much is in there. But anyway, after two weeks, I remember giving Mike Muir my uh, time card to sign. And uh, he said, I'll see you next week. And I said, no, no, I'm leaving. Because I had this brilliant plan, Christian. I was going to be a ski bum in the winter, you see, and then a beach bum in the summer. So I had a buddy in Santa Cruz another couch I could stay on that I was like, I haven't seen the Pacific yet. I'm going to go, I'm going to be surfing within a week. And, uh, Mike like physically recoiled. He like held my card back from me. He's like, what? No, no, <laughs> you're staying here with me. You know, he was new and he was used to, he was from Deloitte and Touche. 
CPA, really, really smart guy. And he, uh, you know, he, uh, didn't have much staff and, and he was like, no, I'm, I'm offering you a job next week. And he did. And the rest is history. It was just crazy. I started as an AP clerk working for John Healy in the brick building next door. Um, and my first job uh, was like a grunt accountant for um, the BitScan audit. So uh, a joint audit of the Department of Justice and the IRS. Just talk about starting at the top when it comes to audits. It was like these weren't junior auditors. You know, this was a high profile audit and these were some seasoned folks. And I mean, we read every piece of paper you could read. Uh, and even some we couldn't where we'd get like all forensic on it, man. You know, we're just trying to read everything and piece that all together. So that was a eye opening experience. That was just it, it, it was really great to start that way. And then. I remember I was doing the accounting and I was reconciling the marker account, you know, which was just, just horrible. I was like, accounting really is as boring as everyone says it is. And Wayne Critchfield came over from the ivory tower next door and uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, uh, uh, let's go to lunch. And I was like, heck yeah. My first free lunch. We walked down the crown burger and, uh, um, he was like, I want you to come work for me in, in finance because he knew I knew the AS400, which was our accounting system. IBM donated it to us. It's actually a piece of junk, but we since, you know, switched over to Paragon. But he knew I knew the AS400 and he knew I knew the budget from working with Bechtel in the beginning. So it was a perfect fit. And uh, so I went over to work for him and, and um, uh, Brett soon, Brett Hopkins soon joined after that. And then after that, you know, Mitten Fraser came in. So that was my, my chain of command. And, um, you know, we did some amazing things in finance. I hate to say it, but, you know, Fraser mentioned it, like breaking down silos. You know, I still tell that, uh, um, like case study to my students about how important it is. And, uh, I, I truly believe that finance helped. Um, I mean, obviously everybody helped, but finance helped, uh, you know, us be a success. It was it was really an amazing thing because when Mitt joined, we had a three hundred and twenty nine million dollar gap, you know, on a billion dollar budget. You know, we had thirty three percent of our uh, uh, percent gap. You know, so to overcome that was just monumental, and I was really proud of it. And 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 and, and I know I, I talked to Lane this week. He's really proud of it. Just how we overcame, and it was the old proverbial things of just great leadership. You know, all those guys I just mentioned are, are, are the epitome of leadership with a, a serious enthusiasm, you know, intellect, integrity, empathy, all those words, you know, that, that and, and we put together a great team, a best in class team um, where everyone really was trying to help each other out, pull for each other so we could all be successful. It, 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 it was a monumental undertaking. We, we did it. We did it. And we made $100 million uh, in profit. Well, I want to figure out how that happened. And hopefully you can help uh, shed, shed some light on that story. But before I do, I find it quite interesting here that you said, all right, I'm a temp. I'm, I want to go surf. Then you get yanked in to this audit for the bid scandal. At any point in time, did you think, 
am I supposed to be the expendable one? Like <laughs> I'm just the, the lowest man on the totem pole. If something goes wrong here, I I'm the one that gets the hatchet. <laughs> no, it was, it, it wasn't like that at all. I, I did uh, find some things or we discovered some things, I guess uh, that I can't talk about that. I was like, wow, they were really doing this, but you know, I, I don't think that I remember talking uh, to my dad about it actually. And he's like, well, you know, it's not in one arm of the government's best interest to shut down, you know, the Olympics, or, you know, the IRS or the DOJ, because, you know, we're in full, you know, it's, it's like a black eye on, on, on the country, you know, in the game. So I wasn't really as worried about that. What I was more worried about the gap, the $329 million gap, and not for me, you know, I mean, I didn't care about me, but just pulling it off. You know, I, 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 I was concerned and stressed that, you know, perhaps, you know, if we didn't get the proper revenue that we'd have to cut in places that, you know, we didn't want to cut. And, and, and that was the beauty of it, that we got creative in finance and uh, we really did come together as a team and build the budget from the bottom up and the top down and then the bottom up again. It was, it was an amazing thing where Brett, I think we had five or six uh, financial analysts or budget analysts at the time. And he gave us each, you know, four or five functions, depending on, you know, how big they were. Some of us only had one function, you know, if it was big, like venue development. But, you know, there was 52 functions. So accommodations, accreditation, accounting, um, broadcasting, creative services, all the way down to venue development. And so you have 52 VPs, you know, and they all create their budget in a silo. And we all came together to say, all right, well, how do we, um, you know, overcome this gap? And we did it in a lot of ways. We did it by consolidating a lot of things like, you know, every budgeted, every, uh, sorry, function had budgeted for tables and chairs or something, right? So we said, all right, we're going to aggregate all that and then use VIK. And that was a huge thing too, that we use VIK um, as much as we could. So we were cash strapped. So we were basically just cash strapped. We had a ton of VIK. We ended up having 500 million of VIK and I think we used 300. So that 200 million was right out the window. You don't use it, you lose it. So what we really focused on was trying to have cash relieving VIK. So if, you know, you had budgeted for something that um, you know, we could use VIK for, we, we would do everything in our power to, you know, put that in operation. So some examples of that is, you know, um, Texaco. So when we had to contract all the buses, you know, we got a deal on the, uh, on the, on the contract because we said, we'll pay for your gas. You know, how does that reduce, uh, the cash we have to pay on the torch relay when we had to wash the GM cars every night because you couldn't have dirty cars on the torch. Uh, we'd use Texaco VIK. They, they had just put in uh, car washes. So we sometimes drive them, you know, many miles just to use the VIK instead of cash. You know, at the Park City Mount Resort, I think our Christmas party up at Park City, we, we, we went to McDonald's, you know. Everyone was pissed at finance. <laughs> and I don't blame them, you know, it was either McDonald's or hot dogs. You know, I wish we could have done a little better with that, but... Uh, yeah, we we, uh, we hit the Park City McDonald's up with like 200 quarter pounders. And uh, so that was fun. So, yeah, using VIK. So we had three budgets. Uh, I don't want to bore you too much about this, but it was a core, a federal and a match budget. 
And I think the core was originally set up, I could be wrong, to keep it under a billion, but that didn't that didn't happen. So it ended up being at one four seven five for most of the time. And we had a hundred million dollars of contingency in there, just cash, just insurance. Um and then we had a match budget. So the match budget, I want to say it was around 120 million. And I think 80 of it was a torch relay. So the best way to think of match was just, it was coming in and coming out. We were just managing it. So we had both the revenue and the expense. So we didn't want to inflate the core budget, you know, to say we had, um, so we had match. And then we had a federal budget. Um, and the federal budget was 152 million. And that had both direct and indirect. So direct was uh, an example, like the medical. What they were helping us with the medical was direct because it was core budget relieving. And um, there was indirect too, um, such as accommodations. But anyway, it got very complicated, right? Because we had these three budgets. We had VIK, we had direct, indirect, and um, we had a change order system. And that's what I uh, was responsible for was the change order system. So we always have to balance the budget with a 100 million in, in contingency and uh, um, get creative with finance. Uh, we also sold some VIK. We sold some Texaco to the city of uh, uh, Salt Lake because we were like, who can buy, you know, a hundred grand worth of gas and diesel? You know, we need cash. So we came, we became like the mafia. Like, hey, you need some VIK? We need some VIK. You know, any way we could turn VIK into cash, we really uh, uh, tried our hardest to do that. Well, it's funny that you you mentioned this, you know, creative finance uh, that has a, a somewhat negative connotation in the common world, right? I mean, uh, we all think of Enron or or something like this, you know, when you talk about creative finance. So when you started mentioning creative finance, and that's where my brain's going, like, okay, we're doing some funky stuff with the books, but actually, it wasn't that at all. What you were doing, saying, okay, here's a problem. Can we find a solution uh, to allow us to bring in additional revenues in ways that will help alleviate the cash flow and um, provide real benefit to the organizing committee. And clearly you pulled it off, even if people were upset that they had to eat at McDonald's. <laughs> and the hot dogs. Uh, no one, people were sick of hot dogs, let me tell you, by the end. But yeah, we did it too with the um, with the financial systems. You know, um, So the reports that we created were just amazing it it it, it was uh it, it it was a it was quite a task where we had these reports and i still tell my students to this day you know a number's an onion and i think i learned that you know you put your finger on a number and then you can drill down into it and we will get to the bottom of where that number came from and you must every time you you put a number down in a financial you you better know where it came from and i remember um when Lane uh, uh, came up with the commitment column. So we came up with, you know, uh, when you have your P&L or your income statement, uh, when you're looking at your budget, you have your budget amount, you have your actual amount, and then you have your remaining typically. Well, we added commitments. So, you know, what were we committed to in POs or contracts? So we really knew where we were. And, you know, I don't know what we were using for a PO system, but it sure as heck wasn't compatible with Paragon, which is where we were at at the time, Paragon. But uh, anyway, it was a little difficult to make it work, but we did. And then I remember 
I was working with one VP in one of the functions I was a financial analyst for, and 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 there was this line item, and you know we we're getting pretty close to the games, like maybe eight months out or something, and it, it was like a hundred grand, and I said, hey, you know what's up with this line item? You haven't spent any money. What's it for? You know, and 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 that was the thing about finance. We didn't know. You know, he said it was for blah 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 blah. You know, and I don't know. He's the subject matter expert, and I don't know anything about his function, but I do know that you know. I can help him be a better manager through these, our financials and help the organization be better. And he was like, um, I, I was like, uh, are you sure we didn't misclass any expenses? You, you know, did we put it in the wrong spot and we, we've spent some money here? And he said, no, no, we haven't spent any money. I was like, all right, well, cool. You know, what do we got to do? Do we need an RFP? Do we got to get rolling? You know, what do we got to do on this line item? And he was like, you busted me. I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's fluff. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you know, all we know from finance is that you come and cut our budget. You come and cut our budget once, you come and cut our budget again, and then probably a third time, right? So they've all had this sort of mentality that instead of partnering with finance for the whole of the organization, you know, they were these evil folks who would come and just cut your budgets, you know? So, so that was really, really impressive. And I remember when we got done, you know, creating our financial statements uh, and the drill down we did, um, even Mitt, Mitt was like, I, I, you know, I've, I've been in finance all my life and I've never seen, you know, reports spun so many different ways. And, and, and I'll never forget the email, man. I hope someone out there has this email. Brett Hopkins sent out an email after we had finalized them and, you know, the whole organization. And he was like, you know, saying how proud he was and saying the format and blah, 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 and how you can drill down. But then he said, uh, you know, my my vision is after the games, the athletes in unison, you know, collectively pick us up in finance and carry us to the podium. <laughs> and because we had the greatest financial reporting system in the history of the games, you know, it was just so funny. Fred has such a good sense of humor, you know, and that permeated through to the department. You know, sure, we were stressed. He was stressed. We were all stressed like crazy, but, um, you know, we always had that, uh, like those guiding principles of have fun and, and um, you know, work together as a team. And, and we truly did. Uh, I mean, I'm proud of it. And I know Lane and Brett are proud of it. Well, I want to expand a little bit on a point that you just made about uh, finance being a partner, because you're right, the relationship is often rather adversarial because everybody needs money to do what they are tasked to do. But it sounds to me like, you under the uh, under your leadership were able to create uh, more of a partnership. Not to say that it was always easy. You know, maybe you can talk a little bit about how that came about. You, you, when you go to a, a functional area and you say, "How can I help you?" I mean, that's providing a service, a level of service that's quite different than I'm cutting you thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah, exactly. And I think Fraser touched on it in his podcast that you know you admit that you don't know anything. Right. That's the first thing. You know, I don't know anything about, you know, anything. I've never read a games before. I don't, you're the subject matter expert of your department, but, um, you know, I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to help. So how can I do it? And, and like you said, so there'd be times where, you know, there'd be a line item that there, they'd be like, you know, we're, we're going to cut this 
And instead of just doing that and the follow-up is, all right, do you need it? How do we get it? Um, can we use VIK? So uh, like Fraser also said, in a lot, of, a lot of organizations, you know, knowledge is power. And, and like I said, finance tries to, you know, act like they're smart and say, you know, well, no, you got to credit your cash and debit your non-VIK expense, you know, trying to sound smart about it. But instead we'd say, all right, well, no, you can't do it that way, but maybe we can do it this way. And maybe we can use this VIK or maybe we can, you know, some of the VIK you have, we can turn in the cash or just getting creative. And it is funny that you say that when I say creative financing, like when I was in Vancouver, they were like, well, we're not going to have three sets of books, you know, and I'm, I was like, well, we're not Al Capone. You know, we're still transparent. We didn't we didn't do anything wrong. It was just it's just, you know, people just, you know, intuitively think that we were we were doing something shady, but we weren't. We were just getting creative and and we really did. I mean, I remember being in some of those meetings with, you know, Fraser and Brett and uh Renee and Tasha and Lane and and, and we were just going through how to use the VIK and we had unallocated VIK and we had the match budget and, you know, it, we just were like, can we do this? Can we do that? And, and, and it was just trying to partner together to use everything we can, because, you know, it's always in the sponsor's best interest to, to, to give VIK instead of cash, because obviously they, their cost of goods sold is lower when they sell it to us for retail or which we never would pay. But, um, and not give us cash. And like I said, use it or lose it. So we needed to do whatever we could to close that gap. And I think, um, you know, we did a great job on the finance and expense side, but then obviously Mark Lewis and those guys on the, on the revenue side, the, the sponsors we got, I think Mitt and uh, Mark asked for forgiveness rather than permission a few times in like getting the hot dogs sponsors, uh, you know, so we didn't just only have McDonald's and, and, uh, you know, having two airlines help us. And, 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 and I think after 9-11, too, it helped a lot to close the gap because everyone in the country, you know, wanted to team together to make the Olympics successful. And I think not only the people, um, because obviously we got a ton of uh, federal support, the federal budget grew dramatically after 9-11, helping in transportation and security, um, but also the sponsors. You know, I think sponsors were like, Hey, what can I do? You know? And, 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 and I think we probably had, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but more local sponsors, the most any OCOG I've ever seen where everyone in the community was like, how do I, how do I be a part of it? And I remember hearing a guy in marketing once it's like, he's like, it's tough to be like these local guys who want to help and be like, it's a million dollars or nothing. And then hang up the phone, <laughs> you know, it's tough. It's tough to get in there. But, you know, so both sides, I think revenue expense and then each function, you know, saying, all right, maybe I don't need that. Or maybe I can do that cheaper. Or maybe how do I do that? That we all came together to not only balance the budget, but, but come, come up with a hundred million dollar contingency. Well, I, I want to come back to the to the contingency and what was left over uh, in a bit. But before I do, uh, what do you do at games time? Because, you know, sometimes the finance uh, department's kind of winding all of that budgeting down. And, and it's really about trying to solve 
really acute situations on venue when something is needed urgently or it's managing the petty cash or whatever it is or preparing for dissolution. So what did you end up doing during the games time? Were you still in the office or were you deployed out on a venue? So I think we had five or six, maybe up to nine uh, financial analysts, uh, finance managers, I think they were calling us at the time. And we had to pick three venues. So, uh, 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 and then Brett would take those, all of our votes, so to speak, and um, um, to assign us our venue. So, you know, I, I thought long and hard. I'm like, man, I want to do hockey, but I knew everyone was going to do hockey at the East Center. And, and then I'm like, I want to ride. And so I wanted to ride up the snow basin. And I was like, that's kind of a long drive. So I think I, I chose Park City Mountain first and then uh, then Snow Basin and then the East Center. And I got Park City. And uh, it was just it was just the greatest thing. I'll never forget the day that we started deploying. Um, and Brett Hawkins comes up to me and he throws the keys to a, a brand new Tahoe on my desk. It says there's a there's a Texaco card and a Home Depot card in the glove box. And I was like, what? That's just crazy. He's like, yeah, you got to get up to uh, got to get up to Park City, you know, and I go up there and we just had we just had the greatest team. So uh, Chris Crowley was running it and uh, uh, Melissa uh, Hilton was our event services and Karen Carfanta, who had run, you know, a million um, U.S. World Cup events you know, was our, was our sport person. And, and so it was easy, you know, you talk about not knowing anything, you know, so I go up there and, you know, I, I don't know what thing, you know, and, and, uh, but it's like, how could I help? And, and, and we really were a team. We really had some fun times. We, uh, you know, we had the, uh, I remember we had the, uh, Christmas party up there. Like I talked about where we're sitting there eating, uh, uh, uh McDonald's and I was with, uh, Chip Suttles, Dave Nugent, and John Niovich, and we're sitting there, and Mitt comes in, you know, all snowy, and we're like, oh, Mitt's going to make a speech, you know, like he always makes a speech, and he's like, they just opened McConkie's Bowl, and we were like, Speedy Gonzalez with like smoke out our backs, we were just flying out there to try to elbow at each other, like who could be the first back there, and it was you know, it had been closed for like two days, I think. So it was just, uh, you know, a snorkel day and just epic. And and I remember another interesting thing about that day was that uh, Hervig Demchar came in and he had snowboard boots on. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, what is going on, Hervig? You know, he's probably one of the greatest skiers of all time. He was an Austrian ski coach, you know, and he was famously uh, the women's Alpine U.S. ski coach and uh, Peekaboo Streets ski coach. And I remember he went on a tour. Bob Bills had asked me to go on a tour with them once, and I couldn't make it. But after I asked Bob, I was like, so how's Hervig on his skis? And he was he was, he's like, it's, he's godlike. <laughs> he's, he's like Zeus's brother or something like that. He's just an amazing skier. So I think Herbig was, he said, uh, um, you know, this mountain holds no challenge for me on skis. So it was his first day on a snowboard. It was amazing. I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, giving him, giving him grief. I was like, you need a coach, Herbig. I, I I I offered my services to be a big snowboard coach, which is kind of funny. He never accepted or denied. But and then I remember we saw him out there. We we saw him from the lift, and we were hoping, you know, to to heckle him. But 
he was already ripping, of course. <laughs> you know, he was already like better than me and everybody. So that that was kind of funny that that was the day that uh, one of the best skiers of all time, that was his first day on a snowboard. You know, so Park City was just, it was just so great. Um, and then you mentioned like what you, what I did. I mean, I remember one time it was snowing pretty hard and Crowley called me at like 3 a.m. or whatever. And he's like, get up here. I'm like, all right. So I get up there and I'm like, here I am. I'm like Batman leaping into action. We get a finance emergency. You know, this is what we trade for folks, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to go up there and be the savior. And I'm going to call the mock and, you know, ask for some money or something. And I get up there and I was like, Chris, so what are we going to do? We're going to, cause we had contracted a snow remover, uh, company. snow remover. I was like, you want me to call these guys, you know, here's the rates. And if they go over eight hours, you know, it's this or that. And he's like, huh? And he handed me a shovel. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> I think it was, it was like Colin Hill talked about it. I think it's like none of those guys wanted to spend any money, like friendly competition between the GMs. You know, they just didn't want to spend any money. And then it was all hands on deck. And I remember being out there, me and Crowley shoveling all night and Nikki Y and Russ York, and I think Roger Baugh and Christy Nicolay, just everybody was out there shoveling. And there was no, there was never this, you know, Hey, this isn't my job. You know what? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to go sit in my trailer and do some accounting. You know, we, we all really did bond together and, and do what we had to do. And I remember we were shoveling right up until, you know, spectators started coming in. It was just, uh, it was just an amazing team. And, 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 and it was just an amazing time. It, it worked out flawlessly. We didn't spend the money. We had perfect weather. It was just great. Did you have opportunity to see any competition while you were there or were you always in the back of the house just doing what you were doing? I definitely did. I saw them all. They were, they were all just really, really fun. We had great weather. We get really lucky. I know uh, Deer Valley and Snow Basin had some weather and um, we, ours all came off without a hitch. It was just, it was just beautiful. I don't think we had any, you know, functional problems or operational problems. And so, yeah, we got to, everyone got to enjoy the uh, events and it was, it, it was so fantastic. And I remember one day uh, snow basin was canceled because of weather and uh, the downhill, I think. And Chris came to the team and he's like, all right, folks, you know, shows on, here we go. Uh, everyone's coming here. You know, we're going to be at full capacity and, you know, the dignitaries that are in the VIPs that are usually half full in the stands are going to be jam packed and everyone's coming. And, and it was just the greatest day. It was such an amazing day. We had perfect weather. The sun was shining. It was just no wind and the perfect conditions. And the U S owned the podium, which was great. You know, I remember Ross Power won it and uh, Daniel Cass and Jarrett Thomas owned the podium. It was just a, it was just a crazy day. And, 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 uh, you know, Mick came and Frazier came and Brett came. So it was like, you know, the pressure's on when, you know, all your bosses are coming. It's like, <laughs> every one of my bosses is going to be here <laughs> watching what we're doing today. And, uh, yeah, it just came off without a hitch. And the enthusiasm that day, it was just, it was just magic. Well, speaking of magic, uh, before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about Torch Relay. So 
why don't you give us a snapshot of the torch relay and why that meant so much to you? Yeah, that was another crazy moment that, so the functions I had were basically easy because I was in charge of the change order uh, system and I was in charge of um, uh, running and, and, and distributing the financials. So Brett gave me the easy functions like accounting, you know, and I had uh, uh, government relations. Cynthia Gillespie was awesome. And I had uh, um, uh, a few other easy functions. President and CEO, I had MITS function, which is kind of funny. He didn't spend anybody, but he had like 125 grand in his budget. And um, so we needed someone to spell Jessica Matsumori up on the torch relay. And, and Brett asked me to do it, I think, because I was expendable, I guess, where other finance folks were actually working with their functions, you know, uh, uh, direly to get things done where I, um, if it was a month end, it was mid month, uh, I was expendable. So he sent me up to, uh, uh, Washington and, um, Jessica did need a spell too, because it's crazy. They're up at like 4am and they're just, you know, they're working all day and then they leapfrog to the next place. And then they gotta, you know, have the torch all day. And then they gotta, um, clean all the cars, fuel all the cars, and 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 it's just go go go. It, it really is never ending. Yeah. So I got up there, and Steve McCarthy was the guy running the place, and <laughs> I truly think he he mistook me for someone else. You know, when he first saw me, he was like, "Hey, you know, Eric, how you doing?" He's such a he's like he just treated me like I was a king for some reason. I, I truly think it was a mistaken identity. You know, I knew him from budget meetings a few times and stuff, but he was just so cool to me. And, uh, he said, you know, we might need you to run this week. And, uh, I was like, heck yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm bored on a green light, man. Let me know when you want to go. And, and he, unfortunately I think people because of health reasons had to back out, uh, uh sometimes, but anyway, sure enough, one, uh, Night he comes up to me and says, "You uh, be in the uh, lobby at 5 a.m." and threw me the uh, uniform, and I had a crazy moment, Christian. One of those a.m. p.m. on the alarm problems that, and my alarm didn't go off. The most important time of my life, and uh, you know, I, I jolted asleep. I mean, awake at at, at 5:22, and I was down in the lobby at. 523 and it was a ghost town. Everyone was gone. And I was like, no. So I called Steve. He's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in the lobby. I'm, you know, an idiot. He's like, all right, I'm sending the food truck. And so I'm out front waiting. And then this truck comes in, this big box truck. And, you know, with a whole uh, look on the side and and this this guy jumps out. He's like, get in. I jump in the back, and we're all just sitting there around like six guys, like uh, like a helicopter or, or or something. And I'm I'm looking around. I'm like, this isn't a food truck. <laughs> and the guys are like, no, we're security. You moron. He's like, we don't call it a food. We don't call it security truck over the radio. You know, for security reasons. And I'm like, oh oh, gotcha. So they dropped me off at uh, uh, my my van, and it was just it was just crazy. Like everyone had a, a such an inspiring story of why they were nominated to run and why they were there, and it was just so humbling, you know. And they got to me, and I'm like, just skip me, please. I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm just a finance guy, man. I I got no reason to be here. Uh, but then when they they let me out, 
uh, I got dropped off in front of an elementary school. So there were a hundred kids outside just screaming and yelling for the torch, uh, passing by their school. And man, so when you're standing there and the flame comes to you and it gets past and, and, and everyone's screaming and yelling. And then suddenly, like after your torch is lit, you raise it up and it goes up another level and another octave. And people are just screaming and yelling. It, 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 it sounds cheesy, but man, that Olympic spirit, you know, the whole uh, um, just elevation it gives you and adrenaline and, and you really are like a conduit or a median of uh you know that spirit and it's just crazy it was just i I've, I've never been i'll never ever be able to duplicate that 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 feeling and and uh you know one of the guys uh who was security who i met in the food truck you know he's like hey he's like slow down he's like stop running i just could i was just i was just so amped up and it was so crazy i think i did like my my hundred yards at like a uh, four, four, forty. So it was, it, it was just nuts. And, and, and then, uh, you know, I got the torch, which I still have today. And, um, it's the only time I've ever been, uh, upgraded on a flight, the first class, and, you know, I took it out of the box and everybody in the plane was taking pictures with it. And the pilot was like running it up and down the, the uh, <laughs> the aisle. It was super funny. It was really cool. It's just, it was just the coolest experience of my life. Is that your goosebump moment then? Because how do you top that? I, you know, I typically ask this question near the end, you know, of your, your most uh, inspirational moment of working at Slock. I, I don't know. Is there another one or, I mean, no. that is, that's, that's pretty darn amazing. Yeah, no, I can't, I, I can't top that, you know, cause I've seen some friends that have run too. And, and actually I turned the corner after the school and it was like most people's experience, you know, a scattering of a folks here and there on their lawn, you know, kind of clapping. But to have that um, school of kids out there screaming for me who didn't, you know, know me, you know, from anyone. And obviously I didn't deserve to be there. But like I said, just uh, just uh, a representative, I guess, of the Olympic spirit and that that. Yeah, no, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about it right now, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, just a couple of things. You may have mentioned this, but I, I may have missed it in all of the excitement there. Um, where was it that you actually ran the torch and when? Kennewick, Washington. And oh, sugar smacks. I'm not quite sure when I should know. Um, but when it was going through Washington, <laughs> Kennewick, Washington is where it was. All right. Well, sugar smacks. I, I like that cereal a lot. So I'll, I'll look for sugar smacks. Although in my old age, I've lost my sweet tooth somewhat. So they're a bit too sweet for me now. But uh, I don't think they call them sugar smacks anymore either. What do they call yeah. them? Uh, they don't want to use the word sugar, you know, so I, I don't uh, yeah, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, all of my all of those uh, sugary cereals of my youth, whether they were Captain Crunch or Sugar Smacks or Frosted Flakes, I'm just like, I can't take the I can't take the sweetness anymore. But anyway, this is not a podcast to discuss cereals, um, but I just like that you said uh, Sugar Smacks. Okay, well, uh, before we finish, I, I know you had a lot of stories. Have we missed anything? 
Uh, I guess not. I mean, I, I, I suppose I'd want to mention extracurricular activities a little bit. And oh, sort yeah, of like yeah. and sort of like creative finance. It might sound bad, but it isn't. You know, it was just great. All the stuff we did uh, um, from pub night to poker nights um, to softball and football and hockey and volleyball. You know, it was just great to be a part of that um, with everybody. It was just so fun. We came in second place, I think, in everything. We came in second place twice in softball. We came in second place twice in floor hockey. Uh, John Iovich and I played in a bunch of volleyball tournaments. He always came in second. We just could never win anything. That was that was what I was going to name our, our team was like second place. Uh, and I remember being those like chip subtles in the uh, using the whiteboard in the conference rooms, like laying out our 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 uh, lineup for the softball team. And you know, it was just so fun to be out there and playing uh, with everybody. It was just great. Our deck hockey team was unbelievable. We tried to recruit you know, real Olympians like Dan Morrow or something, you know, to be our goalie. And he was like, no, nah, I'd rather not go out to West Valley and you know, play with you guys at 10 p.m. at night, get all sweaty. But we had a great team and, and we had just so much fun. It was just it, it was just crazy. It was just um, such great bonding that, uh, you know, uh, um, so many of those guys, dozens of those guys and girls, you know, are still f- good friends to this day. You've shared some really incredible stories, super enthusiastically. It's been awesome to have you on nice. and 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 recount your Salt Lake 2002 experience. Uh, this calendar year, 2021, I'm doing something a little bit different to kind of end the podcast. As I've mentioned in a couple of recent episodes, you know, I've had several people comment about how the podcast is not just entertaining, but it's actually been educational has been a bit of a learning experience for some people. And so I wanted to give all of our guests who are now seasoned veterans having uh, <laughs> at least 20 years of career and <laughs> opportunity to, to share, you know, some retrospective life or career advice. So my final question for you today then would be this, you know, what three pieces of advice would you share? They could be career advice. It could be life advice, you know, things that you've learned along the way in your journey, including your stop here in Salt Lake city that you could recommend to others. Yeah. I, I, I think it goes back to the golden rule, you know, and treat others how you want to be treated and follow your word. And, um, you know, it's just all the obvious things and, and, and all the stuff, you can look at it like, what do you learn from a leader? Like, what do you learn from a guy like Matt or Frazier or Brett? You know, integrity, you know, all empathy, you know, um, just never burning any bridges, you know, unless they have to be burned. <laughs> you know, and even that, yeah, you try to minimize the damage that, that uh, yeah, you, you just, you're, um, um, my dad once said, you know, uh, uh, you're all about what people say about you when you're not around, you know? So you, so, so you want to foster a, um, I guess, uh, reputation of being, um, uh, accountable and a leader, all those things, all those, all, all those, all those qualities, uh, and then hard work. You know, if you have those two things, if you're a, a good, honest person and hard work, you know, you don't even need to be intelligent. That <laughs> that's overrated. I think, you know, that you could you you could still um, you know uh, have a good uh, path in life. 
Well, I think that's very sound advice. And uh, we could probably cap it off with being creative in your accounting. But in a good <laughs> way, right? Uh, <laughs> remember the old joke for accountants was what's one plus one? And the accountant answered, well, what do you want it to be? Uh, that's not the type of creativity we're looking at here. We're, we're looking at the creativity that you and your colleagues displayed. Uh, man, it's been an absolute joy to have you on here, Eric. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing there in Colorado, or if they just want to reconnect and share memories of Salt Lake, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? Oh, uh, um, check out the glacierclub.com in Durango if you want to come move here. And uh, I'm on Facebook and um, Eric James Roy at Gmail. All right. Fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Eric, thank you. Thank you, man. It was really fun. 